New Zealanders want and deserve a transparent and comprehensive inquiry into the COVID-19 response. Not another whitewash. That's why RCR is bringing you a special segment aimed at examining the terms of reference, as well as what the country's best and brightest minds believe should be put on the table and why. The inquiry sessions will endeavour to unpack everything we already know and all the things we still don't know about how the COVID response was handled and what needs to be included in any new inquiry so that New Zealanders can get answers, justice and a future free from government overreach. Welcome to the inquiry sessions. Welcome to another edition of the Inquiry Sessions on Reality Check Radio. My name is Alastair Harding, and today we have with us Nathaniel Mead, the lead author on a new research article that has been released on the scientific journal named Curious. The article is titled COVID-19 mRNA Vaccines, Lessons Learned from the Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign. And it is co-authored with Nathaniel by Stephanie Seneff, Russ Wolfinger, Jessica Rose, Krista Nernick, Steve Kirsch, and none other than Peter McCullough. But the headline claim from this paper is the real star of the story, and that's that this is the first paper to call for a moratorium on not just the COVID vaccines, but mRNA products in general. Because while the words safe and effective have been used to describe the COVID mRNA vaccines, This paper actually shows that Pfizer and Moderna's own data from their trials shows that they are anything but either of those words. So joining us today to discuss the paper is lead author Nathaniel Mead. Nathaniel, welcome to Reality Check Radio and welcome to the inquiry sessions. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the study, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background in this area of study and Also, on a lighter note, I hear that you're a direct descendant of Thomas Jefferson. Has that helped at all? (laughs) Oh, boy. Yes. Well, um, my background is is quite varied. Uh, I have training in biology, um, also as a science educator. Uh, I taught high school biology for some years. I also uh, studied uh, nutrition at a very high level, went to the number one nutrition program in the country, and it was a focus on what's called nutritional epidemiology, which is a study of uh, nutritional effects in populations. Then I became very much involved in uh, writing papers and books and collaborating with scientists, um, mostly epidemiologists, and was involved with some major papers uh, related to cancer. And when the pandemic occurred, I was very much skeptical from the beginning because I kept hearing messages that didn't make any sense from a public health point of view. Masking when people weren't showing any symptoms, being told to be six feet apart, which we now know is a complete myth. There was no validity to that at all. And it really felt like what was happening in 2020 was a kind of programming of the population on a, on a massive scale with messages that were very manipulative uh, and that seemed to be leading to uh, a, larger, a larger agenda. That's what it felt like. So I, I, my whole background uh, as a researcher and a writer and a medical editor positioned me very well for addressing this 
And then when I started to see scientists becoming censored and ostracized and deplatformed and so forth, I actually remained silent until writing this paper. <laughs> so, so this I, is I the first to... time you've actually gone public with your criticisms. It is. It is. And and uh, I feel a little guilty and a little ashamed about that, to be honest. Um, Why was that? I think I was shocked. I was shocked by the uh, suppression of the scientific voices. And I was mm. a little intimidated. That seemed to be an authoritarian kind of agenda, um, which was quite shocking. This is the land of the free. You know, we, we've, we've yeah. been so proud, so proud of our freedom for so many years. And uh, free speech was being stamped upon, you know, all kinds of things were being violated, rights were being violated, and uh, it was quite shocking. So that's a long-winded kind of introduction there, but uh, yeah. Okay, so let's put this in context. What are we talking about here? What is this? It's a, it's a research paper, an article. What's its purpose, and where has it been published? Well, it's a very big paper. Um, yeah, the title is COVID-19 mRNA Vaccines, Lessons Learned from the Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign, as you said, published on January 24th. Um, the medical journal, Curious, spelled C-U-R-E-U-S. And we can uh, find it at, at curious.com, C-U-R-E-U-S, as you say, dot com. That's, that's right. And it's the Journal of Medical Science. It's a web-based, peer-reviewed scientific journal. And this was a very long paper. Uh, I worked on it throughout 2023, and it's a comprehensive narrative review. It's exploring the key themes and key concepts that people need to understand in order to make sense of what has happened over the last few years from a scientific perspective and really lays out how the public and the medical communities were misled by the original Pfizer and Moderna trials that were done in 2020, uh, and also what transpired after those trials, uh, after, after the rushed authorization process. And so we talk about the trials, and then we talk about the implications and, all, and how they were conducted and why they were misleading, and then we talk about the key findings and the other major findings that occurred after the, the authorization process, which was based on those trials. So many people don't realize that after the authorization process, there were reanalyses of the original trials that showed extremely serious problems, not only with the trials, but with the findings that were not reported. Just to be clear here, we're talking about Pfizer and Moderna's own data, right? That's right. Can you tell right. me, why is it that this is the only data we have to go by? I, As a layperson, I always thought that a company would come up with a product and then they'd hand it over to an organization, an independent organization like the FDA, and they would do their own research on it. But this has been a great awakening for a lot of people is that we realize that what the FDA say about it and what our governments say, for instance, here in New Zealand say about it is all based on data provided by the companies manufacturing the products. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And 
the reason that those trials were so important is because they were randomized placebo-controlled trials. So they're considered to be the gold standard for proving something to be true within medical science. So if you have, in this case, a new type of vaccine, which is what it was, it was a gene-based vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, you want to make sure that it's tested according to the best standards of, of evidence. And, and so that is why these trials were so important. But I knew from the very beginning, without even looking at the trial results, that the products were unsafe. And the reason I knew that was because the trials were done in two to three months. So by definition, you can't have a safe product. <laughs> you can't have a safe vaccine. The average period of time for evaluating vaccines was 10 to 15 years. That's what was considered safe. So right away, from the very beginning, when I heard the governments around the world using the same line, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, it was jarring to me because it was such a blatant lie without even looking at the trial results themselves by definition, you could not say they were safe. So the paper we wrote was mainly looking at the degree to which they were unsafe, why they were unsafe, and what the uh, various uh, calculations were for determining the risk to the public. Um, and But again, these trials were considered to be the gold standard. So even with a short trial, now the governments would would try to rationalize it and say, we had to do short trials because it was an emergency situation, so we had to rush it. But if you rush something, you can't, you can't really claim safety. You can maybe say that it was effective to a degree, although they were not effective, <laughs> really, when we looked at it. You could make that claim, but you can't make the claim of safety. Um, it's, it's just an outright lie. So what they should have done is they should have used these products in a much more selective way as a result of these trials. They should have said, okay, we're going to use these trial these products for the most high-risk parts of the population. We're not going to use them for the whole population. That's what they should have done, but they did not do that. And it and it feels, you know, when you when you look back on it, it's hard to call it a mistake. It's just it 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 feels like it was it was more deliberate than that. But you know, now I'm getting into a little hot yeah. water by talking in that in that way. Uh, but but it's ahead. hard it's hard not to start to look for answers, isn't it? When there are so many questions that come up, and one of the things that um that the headline, as I said at the top of this interview, the headline of your study here that people are latching on to is that you're calling for a moratorium on mRNA technology. And yeah. um, but we're not just talking about the COVID-19 vaccines. We're talking about mRNA technology in general, aren't we? That's true. That's true. And first of all, the main reason that we say that there should be a global moratorium, and, and by the way, this is the first peer-reviewed scientific paper that has made that request or demand. First of all, if we, if we look at the, the big picture here, this was an uncontrolled global experiment. The populations that were studied in the clinical trial were basically healthy 
younger populations, the majority of those people. And yet COVID-19 in 2020 was primarily, if it did cause death, which was very, very small percentage of the population, it was the elderly and it was people with multiple comorbidities. I remember very so, clearly the Diamond Princess, right? That The Diamond Princess had all of that information. That was right at the very beginning. Well, yeah, and that, that, was, a, that was a very interesting test case um, yeah. because uh, very few people actually got sick, even though they were in a confined space. And that's the same thing, really, that happened in the trials, that very few people got sick in the trials because they're relatively healthy people, both in the placebo group and in the vaccine group. The problem is that this is a trial that we now know there was a, a lot of under-reporting of cases and also probably of deaths. And we have some good evidence for that. So really, when you look at the fact that this was, again, a relatively healthy population. It wasn't looking at the people who are most at risk for dying from COVID-19 or getting seriously ill from COVID-19. So it's already an artificial situation. And then you vaccinate the entire population. That's the uncontrolled global experiment part of it. And I think the reason that people got misled is because in 2022, there was still a lot of COVID going on. Omicron is, is, is easily transmitted, but there was an interaction between the infection and the vaccine. And this has been pretty clearly demonstrated that if you got vaccinated and then you got exposed to COVID to, to SARS-CoV-2, again, in, in 2022, that was Omicron and variants, your risk of very severe disease and sickness went way up. And that led to a whole, I'd say, a big confusion on the part of the public because they thought, oh, look, COVID-19 is still killing people. <laughs> but no, that's not what was happening. It, it was an interaction because it was not happening among the unvaccinated. It was only happening in the vaccinated. So you're, saying, so you're saying that these injections you've been able to show that they may or may not protect you from something but really what they're doing is that they're making you more susceptible to the infection is that correct yeah yeah that that is um an important part of our paper as well i think that's one of the most shocking revelations for for most people who have come to believe that these vaccines are really doing something they really it's such a shocking thing to tell people that the vaccines are causing immune dysfunction, which is actually making you much more vulnerable to COVID-19. But I'll tell you, I had an experience in 2021 that was quite uh, revealing in this regard. But what happened was I was in Durham, North Carolina, where I was living. My next door neighbors were uh, building a house nearby, but they were living in a, a very small space while their house was being built. The husband was vaccinated, the mother was not vaccinated, and the two kids were not vaccinated. The husband was getting sick regularly. The wife and kids were not getting sick, which was very surprising. He was testing positive for COVID. They were not testing positive. So I saw that. So I thought, well, this is very interesting. At the time, I was a consultant for a number of integrative medicine clinics. So I started to ask around, and I found all these households where people were uh, part vaccinated, 
Some members are vaccinated, some members were not. But in every single case, only the vaccinated people were getting COVID. The unvaccinated were not. Now, I thought, well, this is very interesting. If you could do a large study like this and and really you know, get thousands and thousands of these households and, and look at this, it would be really interesting. But that is what the data from the Cleveland uh, Clinic studies showed, is that the more vaccinations you get, the more at risk of COVID-19 you are. People with the least and people with no vaccination in the uh, Cleveland Clinic study had the lowest COVID-19 rates. And then with each successive set of vaccinations, you would see increasing risk of COVID-19. Now, these are healthcare professionals. These are, this is, these are Could I just interrupt there for one yeah. second, just to explain, yeah. because yeah. Um, we're talking to an audience here in New Zealand. The yeah. Cleveland Clinic is one of the, the biggest healthcare providers in the United States. And these studies you're talking about were done on their own employees, correct? Could you just explain that for for everybody? Yeah, that's right. There, there were over 50, I think it was close to 55,000 in the first study and another 54,000 in the second study. Um, they're looking at their employees and looking at time of vaccination and monitoring infections from the time of vaccination. And they're looking at number of injections and then they're looking at, okay, what happens over time in terms of infection rates? And they found that the highest infection rates were among those who got the most shots. And in our paper, we share, this is already published in peer-reviewed journals, but you can clearly see in the graph, you can see that with more vaccinations, you get more infections with COVID-19. Now, I want to emphasize that Healthcare professionals are really good at recording their data. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're better than the general public in terms of knowing what symptoms are and you know getting tested and all of that stuff. And and at, at these large uh, uh, medical facilities, you're in a in a very good environment for monitoring these kinds of things. So. So that, that, this was a very reliable study. The second study that they looked at was showing that those who are most up to date with the CDC guidelines in terms of their vaccinations had the highest rates of COVID-19. Those who were least up to date actually were doing better. So in other words, if you were, if you were getting, again, fewer injections, you were in much better shape. So right there, there's there's really uh, a very stunning indictment on the vaccines just from that point of view. But we were in our paper, we really focused even more on the adverse events, the serious adverse events. Okay, um, tell us about those. What did what did you find? Well, it's it's a big topic, but there's there's four basic groups of serious adverse events. There's the cardiovascular, which is the number one that is, that is most striking. Cardiac is the heart. So heart attacks and myocarditis, which I'm sure you've heard of and many other people yes. have heard of, that leads to long-term problems. But the myocarditis is one of the most serious issues because it's affecting so many millions of young people around the world now as a result of these 
shots. And just one, one quick note on the cardiac events in the Pfizer trial, trial coordinators knew that there were serious problems happening with the heart, and they report that in their paper, but they do not fully report what happened. And that found out was found out afterwards with the reanalysis of those studies. And it showed that there were four times more serious cardiac events in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated. And they also had twice as many cardiac deaths. That was not reported. And if it had been reported, I don't think these, uh, these products ever would have passed authorization. So that's the first group is the car- cardiac. So um, neurological would be number two. Neurological is extremely important. The neurological effects of these shots are being seen in people of all ages. They're being seen in the form of seizures, paralysis, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then you also have the most common neurological effect, which is dizziness and vertigo. And that's, be, that's showing up primarily in the, in the elderly or in, in older people in general, people over age 60, but it, it's extremely common. And it's leading to a lot of uh, accidental injuries, uh, accidental deaths, huge increase in accidental deaths occurred in the United States in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking unbelievable increase based on CDC data. The stress of, of this vertigo is quite disabling for many people, and it, it results in, in people not being able to live on their own. So neurological problems, you know, you could, you could go through dozens and dozens of them. I'm not going to list them, but people should look at the paper and see what we list. Now, one area that I think is very interesting there, too, is depression and suicidal behaviors, suicidal ideation, suicidal depression. By the way, this is all listed by Pfizer. Pfizer listed these things as actual effects in their documents, which were released under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, they wanted to keep them sealed for, for 75 years. And, uh, I, and, and so- I think that's worth reiterating here is that what you're talking about, all of these different adverse events and everything, this is all... This is your research taken from Pfizer and Moderna's own research, aren't you? There is too much injury happening to ignore it. Um, now, going back to what we were talking about with the, uh, the various conditions, the third group would be the hematological. Okay, so the first group is heart. Second group is neurological, which is brain and nervous system. Third group is hematological, which has to do with the blood systems and clotting, okay, clotting problems. They're finding huge clots, one to two feet, three feet long. I mean, giant clots that are really unusual. Pathologists are looking at these clots and and they're they're kind of dumbfounded by them because they almost look alien. The film Died Suddenly showed that very graphically, didn't it? Yeah. And that's, those clots are the source of strokes, pulmonary embolism, you know, various serious conditions that then end up stealing away life early. It's really sad. I think it's happening in early in, in 2021, there were a lot of strokes happening in the United States that people did not realize were due to the vaccines. 
they thought, well, it's just aging or whatever. But then as strokes continue to increase, I think even the F, uh, was the CDC in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control, admitted that uh, stroke was a signal at the end of 2021. And that was announced publicly. It was even on their website. Mm-hmm. Now, you would think, okay, well, wait a second. If, if that's true, why are they still allowing this on the market? You know, that's, it's kind of bizarre. Okay, so that's the third group. The fourth group is the immune system. When you get injected with the mRNA, it is packaged in a lipid protective coating that allows it to be distributed throughout the whole body, okay? That distribution throughout the whole body then allows the mRNA to produce the spike protein, which is the toxic protein that persists in the body, can circulate for at least six months, okay? Now, during that time, you get inflammation depending on where the mRNA is lodged in the body. So you can get neuroinflammation in the brain. You can get inflammation in the heart if it lodges there, or you get inflammation in in other parts of the body. Interestingly, this uh, mRNA concentrates the most in the ovaries, and there's a lot of concern that this is what's contributing to problems with reproduction and so forth, but we're not going to go into that. But the, the immune system, is a, it's a whole body system. So if you have these cells that are contributing to this inflammation, then you have problems with the antibodies. Uh, there are certain antibodies that are, are ba- basically causing immune suppression in the body. And then you have T cells, which are a very important part of the immune system, that are becoming uh, depleted, or what we call T cell exhaustion. And that, in turn, is contributing to both autoimmune disease and cancer. Autoimmune means that the body is attacking itself, or the the, uh, immune system is attacking the body's own tissues. And then cancer, of course, people know what that is, that is usually kept in check to some extent by the immune system. But when the T cells are exhausted, cancer can take off. So we're seeing cancers accelerating. And this is actually my main area of interest is cancer and has been for the past 30 years. And what's really shocking is that we're seeing cancers that have been in remission for 20 years, 20 or 30 years, suddenly exploding as a recurrence. Usually those cancers never come back, but these cancers are now coming back very fast. And a lot of latent cancers are are being triggered by these vaccines. Um, I I think that's what you touch on, you know, earlier on when you were saying about how um, a lot of people are starting to wake up because they're actually starting to see those things happen in their their own communities, in their own families. I always remember very early on during this period in, in 2020 when we all thought to begin with that by looking at the studies and memorizing the statistics and, and the IFR rates and all of that kind of stuff, we'd be able to convince people with our knowledge but in actual fact what we found was that this is a very emotive issue this is all about emotion and so i suppose now what you're seeing is that when people see these things happening in their own families in their own communities that is 
that, that it suddenly touches them on an emotional level and maybe that's why they're starting to to start to read papers like yours well this was a huge motivation for me because one of my closest friends was unfortunately uh, an unwitting victim of the shots he he and i had been good friends for 35 years and um he um was diagnosed with a very aggressive cancer, acute myeloid leukemia. And it was unbelievable how fast it happened. I mean, the yeah. actual symptoms of the cancer happened within a few days of the uh, second booster. And when he was at the hospital talking to the nurses, he had various conversations and they all told him that they thought it was from the vaccine. He said, well, why aren't you are telling him that? The, the nurses, the oncology nurses, he had five, wow. he was at two separate hospitals and he had five nurses tell him independently that they thought it was due to the vaccine. Now, Robert was a PhD psychologist, very intelligent man. And he asked them, well, why, why aren't you telling the hospital administration? And they said, if we do, we'll lose our jobs. This is a, this is a very dangerous topic to be talking about. We can't, talk about it. And the reason for that was that the hospitals were getting huge amounts of money uh, in 2020, first to report COVID cases and COVID deaths. They were getting on average, this is not an exaggeration, $77,000 per patient. And they were getting lots of incentives there to, to use the vaccine. So this was a very uh, difficult situation for many people. He died, unfortunately, from this cancer. It happened incredibly fast. It was what we call a hyper-progressing cancer. The, the, yeah. the lay term now is a turbo, turbo cancer, but these hyper-progressing cancers, we know the mechanisms and they're happening at a much higher rate than they ever happened before. Can we, yeah. can I ask you about that point that we've just talked about there, about the incentives? How much of this is all about incentives? I mean, one interesting part of your paper is that you mentioned this, um, could you explain that to the listeners? For instance, you outlined some initial investments. The U.S. National Institute of Health invested $116 million in mRNA vaccine technology. The Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BADA, invested $148 million. And the Department of Defense contributed $72 million. And that was just a warm-up. Um, yeah. Moderna-specific investments, BADA and the Department of Defense, 18 billion, including guaranteed vaccine purchases. During Operation Warp Speed in the United States, uh, there was 29.2 billion spent to purchase vaccines, 2.2 billion on clinical trials, 108 million on manufacturing and research. Barter alone spent 40 billion in 2021 alone. How much of this is actually a too big to fail scenario? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the numbers that you mentioned in the beginning there were even prior to the whole pandemic. Okay, yeah. so there was a so lot what of we're what I'm what I'm pointing what we're pointing out yes. there yes. is the investment in mRNA technology, which is what you're what you're calling for is the 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 moratorium on mRNA technology. Full stop. So mm -hmm. that's the investment in this technology that you're talking about. Yeah, and. It's a good segue, actually, from the cancer discussion, because it's important for people to know that 
mRNA vaccines, so-called vaccines, they were called gene therapy products prior to the pandemic, and they were being studied in the context of cancer for 30 years. But they were always considered experimental, and they were considered, and the, and the technology itself was, was considered experimental because the, uh, it's a very unstable technology because the mRNA varies a lot in its composition. But going back to these numbers that you just mentioned, so prior to the pandemic, you had these huge investments in mRNA technology that you mentioned, including the Department of Defense, which is very interesting, since yeah. we now know that this that the virus was leaked from the Wuhan lab. So huge, hundreds of millions of dollars invested prior to the pandemic, then the pandemic comes along, you continue to see billions dedicated to the research, pre-purchasing hundreds of millions of doses, pre-purchasing before the clinical trials were even started. Mm. They were pre-purchased. So that was the point in our paper was, look, there was a, an extreme bias on the part of the government to make sure that these trials showed a favorable outcome. And that's why there's good reason to believe that these trials were prematurely terminated, not because of an extreme emergency, but because they wanted to have an outcome that looked favorable and they wanted to be sure that the potential adverse outcomes were not shown to the public because if they had extended the trial it's very likely that the more risky side of this technology would have come to light. And, you know, we now know that there were some very, very bad aspects to this, that including the DNA contamination, which came out after these products were released to the public on a massive scale. So, yeah, financial incentives for the governments and then for the hospitals and even doctors were getting financial incentives. And they still do. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield has actually made this very overt here in the United States. You know, it's a ins big insurance company. And they've actually told, they, they have uh, documents showing uh, incentives to doctors to, to vaccinate their patients. Financial, uh, quite substantial incentives going into tens of thousands of dollars um, yeah. for just distributing these to their patients. And so many doctors... I think were uh, pulled into this because of those financial incentives, uh, and it's it's very unfortunate. Those kinds of numbers suggest to me that a, a really significant line has been crossed by science here. Um, is yeah. there any coming back from this for science? Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Um, I think science people are less trusting of scientific authorities, agencies, experts. Um, the meaning of scientific consensus is coming into question. Uh, Consensus-based science is really becoming something very untrustworthy. And it, I, I, think, I think we're at a, at a critical crossroads with respect to the public's perception of, of the scientific community. And it's going to take a lot of work to repair the, the damage that has been caused by this. And I think, unfortunately, Anthony Fauci... Uh, by calling himself the science, he, he started this whole problem. 
because he he created this perception that science is a monolith where everyone agrees. Yeah. No, it's not the way it is. Science is a constant process of questioning, of arguing, debating, looking testing for ideas, testing ideas, and really admitting that what we're talking about is a perspective that each scientist has. And then you get to test that perspective through the scientific process, the scientific method. It's going to take some time to repair, I think. Yeah. Do you think that your paper can be part of that process? And, and what has the reaction been to it so far? Well, I mean, you, in fact, I think PolitiFact just uh, uh, came out with something today, you know, pants on fire, which I guess means that they yeah. think we're hysterical. Um, and, uh, but at least they're not ignoring you, right? Oh no, no. Actually, I think the fact that they're paying attention is is yeah. means that they're really scared uh, because this is um, th this is a big threat to put to put the information together in this way is quite threatening. It it was um, immediately uh, we saw reactions on the curious website from the vaccine industry, they sent their trolls uh, with all kinds of very disparaging remarks and uh, very, you know, insulting, uh, belittling, uh, really verging on um, libel and, and defamation because they were saying things about my colleagues that were just frankly false, that they're not, that they lack scientific training or had no scientific training. They said about uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Stephanie Seneff, who's one of the most brilliant biological scientists you'll you'll ever meet, who could talk for hours and, and out-argue any scientist on the mechanisms involved here. Uh, one of our, our, our uh, co-authors is one of the top statisticians in the United States, um, Russ Wolfinger. He's an outstanding scientist. Peter McCullough is probably one of the most brilliant cardiologists and well-published that you will ever meet has more publications to his name than any scientist I know. Um, yeah. And, uh, and he could, he could easily uh, dance circles around most cardiologists in terms of the uh, issues around myocarditis and, and some of these things. So I think, uh, you know, we have an incredible team. Um, my role was really to, to help this collaboration translate into a coherent uh, review of the evidence that would really help people get some clarity about how could this possibly have happened. And that's what motivated me too, is I, I just saw so much confusion out there in the public, you know, because of the, the different narratives and the cognitive dissonance that was happening as a result of those different narratives. I just wanted to bring more clarity. And that's why I was uh, why, why I poured so much energy into this paper. It's a, really, of, the, of all the papers that I've published, I've had over 40 papers on, on PubMed, I guess 45 papers now. Um, this is by far the most difficult paper I've ever worked on, um, in part because it's so emotionally charged. Um, the, the topic is very emotionally charged. I, I got physically ill, actually, toward the, the end of writing it, just from the the psychological implications of when I started to realize the implications of, of all of this. Um, it was, it was quite, 
quite sad, tragic, actually. What's, what's happening is, is really tragic. So where can people read your study? What, what were the, we were talking about it before we came on okay. here. What, okay. what are the places people can look for your study? Uh, okay, so uh, this, this paper, which I, I highly recommend that you, you download it yourself. If you Google my last name, Mead, M-E-A-D, and uh, the senior author's last name, McCullough, so Mead McCullough, lessons learned. Just Google those four words, Mead McCullough, lessons learned, and you'll see the paper come up. Um, and then you just you can download it um, through PubMed. Um, it's an open access, free, full text article. And I've um, also read it here on curious.com. That's C-U-R-E-U-S dot com. That's right. You can you can get it directly from the Curious website as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, hey, thank you so much for your time, Nathaniel. You've been incredibly generous with it today. And also, thank you so much for your research. I know it means a lot to a lot of people, especially because it's such a confusing time to be alive. But yeah. to have people searching and challenging and debating these things is so important. So from all of us at RCR in New Zealand, Thank you so much. We are watching from afar and we thank you for your time and your service. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate the good people in New Zealand uh, in so many ways. I have some dear friends in New Zealand and uh, I just hope people will keep an open mind if they're, if they're still skeptical about the arguments that we laid out here, check it out, read the paper and, and consider it. So that's Nathaniel Mead, lead author of the newly released paper, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, lessons learned from the registrational trials and global vaccination campaign. The paper is now available to read at curious.com. That's spelt C-U-R-E-U-S dot com. And it delves deep into the mRNA trial data of the very companies that sell our government their products. And as I said at the top of the interview, its headline claim to fame is that it's the first paper to call for a moratorium on not just COVID vaccines, but mRNA products in general. Hopefully someone's listening and debate and discussion can begin. My name is Alastair Harding, and thanks for joining us on another interview for the Inquiry Sessions, only on Reality Check Radio. The RCR Inquiry Sessions. Unpacking the COVID response for an honest inquiry.